Welcome to Bitchy History, the irreverent history podcast that really doesn't understand why historians have to keep explaining that the past really wasn't a better time to live in for anyone but white straight men. But here we are. Before we get into this episode, I want to announce that I just released a book that I co-wrote. It's available as an ebook on Amazon right now, and I'll post a link to it on bitchyhistory.com. It's not history-related, but it is based on textual analysis of popular culture, which is kind of a side hobby of mine, if you haven't noticed. The title is Pop Culture Tarot, Learning the Tarot Through Your Favorite Fandoms, and it will also be available as a print-on-demand version later this week. So if tarot is something that you have even a passing interest in, or you just obsessively love to read textual analysis of fandoms like Harry Potter, Star Trek, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you should definitely check it out. And now on to the history, or in this case, the analysis of how overly romanticized versions of history are a problem for society. This entire episode actually began as a TikTok video where I was responding to a viral TikTok by another creator, which I still to this day cannot decide if she was legitimately having a breakdown about how much she hated her job, or if she was just trying to go viral by saying some truly out-of-pocket shit about feminism. But that's neither here nor there, really, because her complaint is one that mirrors a lot of actual rhetoric that comes out of the anti-feminist movement today. The idea that feminism has been harmful for women, that women were better off before the Women's Live movement. Whoever fought for women to get jobs. Why? Why did we do that? I am so tired. I want to just put my feet up. Like, I am... Oh my god. I pointed out in my response to this TikTok, which is actually pinned at the top of my TikTok account if you'd like to watch it, that this is a wildly skewed perspective on what it was like for women before we fought for women to get jobs. It's true. Living in the modern world is exhausting. The economy is dog shit. The housing and rental market is dog shit wrapped in cat shit. And I work three jobs, none of which include health insurance. This shit sucks. But that doesn't mean it would suck less if I didn't have my autonomy as a woman, and it definitely doesn't mean that life for women before we got the right to have bank accounts and credit cards and not be fired just because we got pregnant was some pie-in-the-sky fantasy where we sat back with our feet up and ate bonbons all day. To start with, let's take a look at what life was like for women in the Western world during the Middle Ages. Unless you were one of the very privileged few women who came from extreme wealth and had servants to see to their every need, you were working to support yourself and your family throughout history. Women have always been intrinsically important to the financial stability of their homes. Women made up a significant portion of the labor force in the Middle Ages, even if their work was mostly confined to the household because of the public sphere, private sphere separation that was prevalent during this time. However, men's work and women's work often did have a lot of crossover. For instance, farm labor would have fallen under domestic labor just as much as it did men's work. Women participated in harvesting and herding animals, and household labor, the main area of women's work, was grueling to say the least. It encompassed everything from child-rearing to gardening, processing and preserving food, baking and cooking, spinning, weaving, and clothing manufacturing, foraging, and tending all of the smaller animals like chickens, pigs, and goats. Then, as populations grew and land grew more difficult to get, it became more difficult for a family to be supported on farming alone, and a commercialized economy began to grow up, which would allow women's work outside the home to grow. 
In a commercialized economy, women made butter, cheese, soap, and cloth that was sold at local markets. Women, both married and unmarried, also began to be hired in the service economy far more often. Women worked for wealthy families as wet nurses, nannies, cleaners, cooks, and in many other domestic roles. On top of the very real financial responsibilities of women during this period, the duties of wife and mother took their toll as well. Women would have an average of six to seven pregnancies during their lives, a condition that isn't without extreme dangers today with modern medicine. But even worse, the infant mortality rate was abysmally high. 25% of those babies would die before the age of one. Another 12.5% of children died before the age of four, a mental and emotional toll that would no doubt have weighed on mothers at the time. And then on top of all of that, women lived in a patriarchal society that undervalued them and saw them as second-class citizens. I've already talked about the practice of coverture on this show all the way back in episode 6, so I won't belabor that point here. You can go back and listen to that episode if you haven't yet. Even upper-class women, with some exceptions, were little more than political pawns to be traded in marriage for treaties and political power. One of the few places women could go for education and some form of freedom from male influence was the convent, but even then they were entering into a religious world that viewed women in a fairly negative light. The political and religious systems of patriarchal Europe viewed women as inferior to men in both mind and body. Religion viewed women as the origin of original sin since it was Eve who first was tempted and took the apple. Society viewed women as intemperate, gossipers who created social discord and lacked self-control. Even medicine tended to still view women through the lens of concepts like hysteria and the wandering room, believing that women were irrational and not trustworthy to know their own mind as a result. So all of this means that women were just as responsible for their homes and the financial stability of their families. They simply did it in a period in which they were legally regarded as second-class citizens with overall little control over their finances or their own bodies. There are, of course, notable exceptions to this based on period and geography and circumstances of the individual cultures and positions of women. But overall, women were not in a position of power, but they were just as economically put upon as women today. But of course, the anti-feminist women like Phyllis Schlafly, who spout this kind of women were happier before feminism rhetoric, aren't interested in returning to the Middle Ages, because who would actually want to return to life when the Black Death was a threat and there was no indoor plumbing? What these anti-feminists are jonesing for is the American dream circa 1950, right before the major push for women's lib began in the 1960s, the so-called golden age of America. And don't take my word for it. Let's look at some of their own words on the subject. In Who Killed the American Family, Phyllis Schlafly makes it extremely clear what she thinks the heyday of the American family was. This book explains the combination of forces that abolished the American family as we know it in the 1950s. The 1950s was the high-water mark for the American nuclear family. Social policies favored it, evidence supported it, and no one apologized for it. And Candace Cameron Burr in her book, The Good Wife's Guide, is damn near orgasmic in her fetishizing of the 1950s. Here's a couple of quotes. I love all things vintage, clothing, ornate furniture, dishes, and strong family values. I cherish the days when giving one's word meant something to her in this life, when the sanctity of marriage was reserved for a man and his wife, when women were women and men were just men, when the only choice society offered was life. And... After taking one look at the little cafe, I knew that I had to call my husband in from the car. The red vinyl booths, many jukeboxes at every table, and the checkerboard floor were a welcomed blast to the past. But what really caught my eye was the way the vinyl bar stools lined up in perfect order. Excuse me, I need to go and vomit after reading that. And Suzanne Vinker, 
Phyllis Schlafly's niece, by the way, in her book, The Alpha Female's Guide to Men and Marriage, writes, Now for the million-dollar question, am I suggesting we go back to the 1950s when most women were supported financially by their husbands? The short answer is no. We could never go back, even if we wanted to. But don't be quick to assume women today have it so much better than women did back in the day. Remember, women robbed Peter to pay Paul. They may be financially independent, but they're also exhausted and angry. And if they have children, they're saddled with guilt and stress. Two words women back in the day never used to describe their lives. Yeah. Sure, Suzanne. And it's not just the anti-feminist women with this obsession. Writers in the manosphere talk wistfully of the old days of the 1950s as well. Ian Ironwood, in his nauseating book titled The Manosphere, A New Hope for Masculinity, says, The Christian corner of the manosphere isn't about abortion. It's not even about anti-feminism, although a lot of that comes up. It's about men trying to be men in the modern world and still stay true to their religious beliefs as they see them. And these are, by self-definition, family men. They take the biblical injunction to go forth and multiply literally. They want a wife and kids in the American dream, preferably the 1950s version. And they've been attacked for pursuing that dream for decades. Feminists call it oppressive to women, but for the conservative Christians in the manosphere, the Bible is standard by which everything is measured, marriage not the least. He also writes that there's a major difference between women doing their marital duty in the 1950s compared to today, the difference being that men apparently feel emasculated by the emphasis on the female orgasm and women's expectations about sex are too high, which leads to marital conflict. Ooh, self-burn. Those are rare. And in a 2011 video for TV Ontario's The Agenda, titled Goodbye to Good Men, Jordan Peterson had this to say. Remember those 50s hat-sporting fathers who stayed married, supported their families, and repressed women? Well, they're headed for extinction. But here's the thing. These right-wing anti-feminist advocates are selling a nostalgic bill of goods to a public who would only fall for it if their only real historical knowledge of the 1950s was reruns of The Donna Reed Show and Leave it to Beaver. The real story of women's lives in the 1950s is a story of being shoved forcefully back into a box by society. Women had found they liked the money, freedom, and fulfillment of the professional sector that they had gained during the Second World War. It would take some very targeted messaging to turn these workers back into happy homemakers. And of course, sociologist Ferdinand Lundberg and psychiatrist Mariana Farnham took to that challenge with their 1947 book Modern Women, The Lost Sex, which would become a nationwide bestseller. In the book, they argued that modern women had become psychologically disordered and therefore less interested in having and raising children. They categorized feminism as a deep illness, saying that the dominant direction of feminine training and development today discourages just those traits necessary to the attainment of sexual pleasure, receptivity and passiveness, the willingness to accept dependence without fear of resentment, with a deep inwardness and readiness to accept the final goal of sexual life, impregnation. It was the essential error of feminists that they attempted to put women on the essentially male road to exploit, off the female road to nurture. They also said that a healthy woman has no fantasy in her mind about being an independent woman, a contradiction in terms. She knows she is dependent on the phallus for sexual enjoyment, which, as she is genitalized, she is in need of. Having children is to her the most natural thing possible, and it would never occur to her to have any doubts about it. Excuse me again while I go vomit. And not long after the publication of Lundberg and Farnham's book, Dr. Benjamin Spock, no relation to the other Spock, we like the other Spock, he reiterated these ideas about the role that women were meant for in his extremely popular baby and child care book. 
Caring for children was not simply a task that needed to be performed, it was meant to be the central focus of women's lives. There was enormous social pressure for women to be wives and mothers. Magazines glorified the domestic sphere above all other pursuits for women, publishing articles with headlines like, Have Babies While You're Young, Are You Training Your Daughter to Be a Wife, and Politics is a Man's World. But even when you went along with that social pressure, life didn't become some stay-at-home mom dream life. Married women made up 47% of working women during the 1950s as well. They just worked in suitably pink-collar jobs, like selling Tupperware and waitressing. You know, jobs with little chance for career advancement and not enough income to support yourself, let alone your children, if your husband decided to trade you in for a younger model. Oh, and if you did happen to want to leave your husband for some reason, as I mentioned back in episode 6, it wasn't an easy task to accomplish, and once you were out, what then? Women had little economic agency. They didn't even have equal access to credit cards or mortgages until the 1970s. In a 2011 interview with NPR, Phyllis Schlafly said that when she went to law school that the only person's permission I had to get was my husband's, which is honestly quite hilarious since this was only a little over a century since the U.S. Supreme Court had decided in Bradwell versus Illinois that a woman could be denied a license to practice law. The only reason that the only person's permission she had to get was her husband's was because of decades of effort by feminists to ensure the equal rights of women. But of course, I'm sure Schlafly was right when she said that she didn't owe the feminist movement anything. Hear that? That's the sound of Schlafly not just pulling ladders up behind her, but actively setting them on fire. But I could do an entire episode that was nothing but one insult after another in reference to Phyllis Schlafly. So let's move on before I get sidetracked. Most hilariously, Schlafly writes this incredibly historically illiterate line at one point in Who Killed the American Family? Women's magazines of the 1950s and 1960s were helpful and hopeful. Women didn't need Zoloft or Prozac. Today, women's worry list of fears and woes includes everything from the weight of the world's problems to the weight of extra fat on themselves. This is a truly asinine statement when we look at what life was truly like in the 1950s for women. I mean, look, the Rolling Stones didn't give us a song like Mother's Little Helper because women weren't popping pills left and right to get through the day. Men just aren't the same today I hear every mother say They just don't appreciate that you get tired They're so hard to satisfy You can tranquilize your man So go running for a shelter of a mother's little helper And for help you through the night Help to minimize your flight The only reason women weren't taking Zoloft and Prozac was because those two exact drugs hadn't been invented yet, but they were sure as hell popping more than a few pills with other names. The two classes of drugs that became the most popular were barbiturates and amphetamines. Barbiturates are a group of drugs that have calming effects on the body. They can produce effects similar to those of alcohol, ranging from mild relaxation to an inability to feel pain or a loss of consciousness. Drugs like butasol were advertised as the daytime sedative for everyday situational stress. Or Cerax, which had a tagline that said, You can't set her free, but you can help her feel less anxious, with a photo of a woman trapped behind a line of cleaning tools that were set up to look like a jail cell. Nice. Medical columnists in magazines like Cosmopolitan and Ladies Home Journal told women that sedative drugs like Milltown and Valium were the cure for everything that ailed them. Stressed, anxious, frigid in the bedroom, this class of tranquilizers could fix any problem. 
1960, women were twice as likely as men to be taking tranquilizers. Advertisements, popular culture, and physicians had begun to push women toward the calming effects of Milltown, especially especially when it related to the needs of their husbands. In one 1956 article in Cosmopolitan, one doctor reported that after taking the drug, frigid women who abhorred marital relations reported that they responded more readily to their husbands' advances. Because we all know that the answer when your wife doesn't want to have sex with you is to encourage her to medicate herself into insensibility so she won't mind performing her marital duties so much. I guess that's what Ironwood was talking about in his book about the emphasis on women's orgasms being too much for men to deal with these days compared to the 1950s. I guess it is a lot less stressful to have sex with a woman too strung out on sedatives to care what's going on. Side note, can someone remind me to call in a tip to some law enforcement agency somewhere to have someone check to make sure that that author doesn't have any women in his basement against their will? He's just giving off some really bad vibes. And to return to Schlafly's asinine commentary, she mentioned that women today are stressed about extra fat on themselves, as if women's body image wasn't an issue in the 1950s. Amphetamines, also known as uppers or stimulants, were used by women to help lose weight, battle depression, and have enough energy to get through the day. Drugs like methadrine were advertised to give the depressed patient a genuinely brighter outlook, and also as a treatment for obesity that would keep the reducer happy and dispel abnormal craving for food, because we all know craving food is abnormal. But if life for women in the 1950s was actually kind of a mess and the stability and happiness of the nuclear family was a complete lie, why is this lie so ingrained in our minds? Where do we learn to romanticize and fetishize this period the way that we do? Well, televised propaganda helped that along a lot. By 1957, there were 40 million television sets in the United States. Nine out of ten American families owned at least one set by the end of the decade. By the mid-1950s, situational comedies and family dramas presented a very standard traditional family structure, a nuclear family with two biological parents and their children. Much of the programming of the 1950s and early 1960s created a common image of American life, which acted as propaganda to further enforce the social norms of the 1950s. This is a complex issue, and trust me, we will end up discussing it in excruciating detail when we eventually get to the Cold War in American History 101. Television showed families in which, as the title of one of the popular shows put it, Father Knows Best, and in which most women were mothers and housewives striving to serve their children and please their husbands. And it wasn't just television. Everything from advertisements to home economics textbooks presented a view of social norms that said, these traditional gender roles are what make everyone happy. They pushed the 1950s image of the ideal woman, a stereotype that conjures the mythic images of June Cleaver and Donna Reed, the quintessential white middle-class housewife who stays at home to rear the children, clean the house, bake the cookies, and always did it with a smile on her face and a string of pearls around her neck. Our popular knowledge of this era is based on the very propaganda that was being pushed as propaganda at the time. Anti-feminists are actively selling us a bill of goods based on a version of the 1950s that never existed, trying to prove that the world we live in is only bad because women's liberation made it that way, and everything would be just so much better if we gave up this silly game of demanding equality. Later, in that same NPR interview I discussed earlier, Schlafly had this to say. Do you feel that feminism has made any contribution to American life? 
No, I think it's made women unhappy. It's to make them believe that we live in a discriminatory and unjust society and that they should look to government to solve their problems. What is your advice to the young women in your family, and the men for that matter? Well, I think, as we say in the book, uh, that it's unfortunate that uh, colleges and women's studies courses guide women to a career path that has no space for men, marriage, or children. And I think you should plot a life that will give you the joy of marriage and children. And a few years later in Who Killed the American Family, she writes that women seem to be happiest when they have lasting marriages to men they can look up to. Feminism has taught them that they will have more choices in life if patriarchal marriage is destroyed, but someday they will realize that feminism has made them unhappy. Except we know that's a load of bullshit, like so much of everything Schlafly has ever had to say. And before we get into why it's a load of bullshit, can we just take a moment to think about how very creepy that line about marriages to men they can look up to is? I'm sorry, are women supposed to be equal partners or wide-eyed innocents looking for mentors? Never mind, I can guess which one Schlafly thought. I'd go vomit again, but three times would be a bit much. So back to why her claims about marriage making women happy and feminism making us unhappy are utter bull. A number of studies have reported that single women tend to be healthier and less depressed and live longer than married women. Single women generally experience fewer stresses and compromises than married women, and they feel more empowered. In one study in the UK, 61% of single women said that they were happy with their relationship status compared to 49% of single men. A further 75% of single women were not looking for a partner compared to 65% of single men. According to Paul Dolan, a professor of behavioral science at the London School of Economics, men derive benefits from marriage. The same cannot generally be said for women. Dolan concluded that the healthiest and happiest population subgroup are women who have never married or had children. It turns out women do just fine on their own. We only needed men when society created a structure that made us need them. I've even figured out how to open my own pickle jars and kill the occasional six- or eight-legged creature that sneaks into my home. The nostalgic rose-colored lenses that we often view human history through can be fun, it can be entertaining, but they are more often dangerous. They invite us to believe in a world that never existed and entice us into thinking that we can make things great again, if we just make things like they were in the good old days. You know, it's funny. When you look at someone through rose-colored glasses... All the red flags just look like flags. Everyone who overly romanticizes these eras seems to have one major thing in common. Well, two, since most of these people are paler than a tub of mayonnaise, which definitely has something to do with their view of the past. But the major thing all of their fantasies about what life was like in the past have in common is that they are all based on a very idealized concept of what the past was like. And the idea that if life was like that once more, they would be one of the privileged few, rather than living the life of serfs, servants, and peasants, or some resentful housewife popping pills to get through the day because they hate the life society has forced them to accept. And if things are going to suck either way, well, I don't know about the rest of you, but I'd rather be exhausted and equal than exhausted and subservient. Thanks for tuning in to listen to me bitch about history. Big emphasis on the bitch part in this episode, to be honest. I fully admit that the narrative of this one got away from me a little bit at times, but I hope you learned something regardless. Next time, we'll be back to the American History 101 part of the series, and we'll start getting into the aftermath of the French and Indian War and what that means for the colonies. 
In the meantime, don't buy any bridges, no matter how good the price is. Don't take any wooden nickels. And if the history someone tries to sell you sounds like something that would come out of Phyllis Schlafly or Ron DeSantis's mouth, for God's sake, ask a historian before you believe any of it. And I'll see you back here next Monday.